Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at the innovator's method and how it can be applied in your organization. We'll talk about how lean startup principles and design thinking can help accelerate the innovation process, the four-step process that makes up the innovator's method, and the merits of using minimum awesome products to test out concepts and validate ideas. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Nathan Furr. Nathan is an author, speaker, and assistant professor of entrepreneurship, innovation, and strategy at Brigham Young University. His most recent book is The Innovator's Method, Bringing the Lean Startup into Your Organization, which he co-authored with Jeff Dyer. Nathan is also the co-author of Nail It, Then Scale It, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Creating and Managing Breakthrough Innovation, which he wrote with Paul Ostrom. Among the outlets in which Nathan's writing has appeared are Forbes.com and the Harvard Business Review. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today by talking about your most recent book, The Innovator's Method. There's a great quote early in the book from Steve Cook, who's the founder of Intuit. And he says this, as as a successfully scaled company, you cannot run the ship the way you used to. You'll get run over by a swarm of startups. What did your research tell you about why innovation is as important today, if not more so, for large established companies as it is for startups? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the evidence is pointing out to us that innovation is becoming actually more important than it ever has been for large companies. And that is because there's been a fundamental shift in the environment towards uncertainty. So there's always been uncertainty that, you know, companies and managers have had to deal with. But what's changed is with the evolution of many new technologies, new participants in the market, the lowering of barriers to participating in the market, innovating and creating startups. Established companies are feeling immense pressure in directions they've never felt as customers are lured away, new technologies come in that could displace them. I recently had a conversation about one of the executives at a large European bank. And the executive said, five years ago, I knew who my top five competitors were and what they were going to do. Today, I have like 50 competitors and I have no idea what they're doing. And that kind of uncertainty is engendered by all these competitors pursuing new opportunities and established companies have to learn to innovate to survive in that environment because having a single or a few growth products or services, those services will, uh, the revenue stream from those will dry up much more quickly and become much less certain. And so you have to replace those older revenue streams with new revenue streams much more quickly than you ever had to do before. And so is the, do you think one of the answers is to focus on strictly what you're doing as opposed to worrying about what the competitors are doing? Or is it, are you better served kind of getting a feeling about what all 50 of your, of your new competitors are doing, do you think? Yeah, well, 
It's a good question, Will, and in some ways, and you're probably smiling while you ask it, you know. <laughs> Understanding what all 50 of your competitors are doing is, is really quite a challenge. And, you know, if we believe some of the work on strategic differentiation, if our lens of focus is purely on competitors, then we tend to engage in what's been called red ocean strategy, but really, which is, you know, matching our competitors uh, and, and never really kind of carving out that clean space to create new growth. And of course, you know, I'm not advocating ignoring your competitors. You have to do that. Mm-hmm. But, but what I am advocating is that in this, you know, uncertainty is, is a negative thing in the sense that, you know, our familiar activities may not be valuable in the future. But it's a positive thing because in the sense that new growth, new opportunities, and and innovation come out of uncertainty. So what I am saying is that whereas in the past, management typically focused on capturing value. How do we squeeze the most revenue out of our existing opportunities in our existing markets? What I'm saying is that those things are valuable and important things that companies have to do to pay the bills, but they need to shift gears uh, with you know a, a large portion of their effort to create new growth through innovation. So what I mean specifically is finding those customer needs that have not been met and solving those in a low-cost, iterative way that allows the firm to be much more successful in bringing growth innovations to market. Yeah, it sounds like creating value more so than creating efficiencies. Yeah, it's a a good contrast between creating value versus capturing value. And, you know, traditional management, as we know it, is really a tool that has been built for capturing value. You know, traditional management was developed during the Industrial Revolution to manage these huge firms that were created by technology to literally make the trains run on time and to optimize the production lines. What management was not built for was how to discover those opportunities in the first place. And so the focus of what we talk about in the book is, well, what are the frameworks for managing uncertainty? And how could a manager apply those frameworks in very unique context to lower the risk of innovation while at the same time embracing some of that uncertainty, not just squeezing out the uncertainty? And so you, you mentioned the book. Let me ask you about the four steps of the innovator's method. What are the four steps? And can you go into a little bit of detail about what each one entails? Yeah. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, where we came up with that. Um, our, our research essentially had two branches. The, the first branch was to look at established companies that had been successful or not successful in innovation. And what I mean by that we really had a couple categories of firms. We had established companies that had started out very innovative and had maintained their innovation capabilities. And, and many of these firms, you you know, by by heart, you know, the Amazon, Apple, Google, Gore, these kinds of companies have somehow managed to maintain their innovation capabilities. A more interesting second category, which we explored, was established companies that had lost their innovation cap- capabilities but then somehow managed to revive them at a later date. The third category was you know, startup innovators because startups are by definition pretty good at managing uncertainty if, if they're successful. 
And uh, the last category was failed uh, innovation initiatives. And, and we basically looked at what are those firms doing to be to bring their ideas to market. And, and in parallel, the second arm of the research was, I mentioned that traditional management was built for relative certainty, but as the world has become more uncertain around us, every discipline has developed a framework from, from innovating under that uncertainty. So for example, in engineering, it's called design thinking. In entrepreneurship, we call it lean startup. In computer science, it's agile software. And, and what we did is we looked at each of these, these frameworks and we synthesized these into a common set of steps because as it turned out, each framework was strong in a particular element of the innovation process and sometimes weaker in another element of that process. And so we, we synthesized this down to four common elements of very successful innovations. And they can occur in this order, they don't have to occur in this order, but we do believe that all four elements have to be addressed. And, and uh, I can briefly summarize those for you. Sure. It, on the surface, it's actually quite simple. It's an innovation begins with an insight and then progresses by deeply understanding what problem are you actually trying to solve. Then iteratively matching a solution to that problem then aligning the business model around that all before you scale it up in a big way. And, and on the surface, those, those names may sound you know, very commonsensical, but I think the real challenge comes in the traps that entrepreneurs and managers fall into as they, as they skip steps. You know? So, for example, it's pretty obvious to say that you know, innovations start with an insight, uh, and we talk about the importance of savoring a surprise at that step. But, you know, what many, many people struggle with is, is actually recognizing surprises and developing the behaviors that will allow them to spot more surprises than others. So in that chapter, for example, we talk about what are the behaviors of people who have more aha moments like, wait, what, if, what, if, what about that? Or could we do that? Or why is that happening? What, what are the behaviors of people who have more of those surprise moment. And then and another example is that once people have that surprise, they typically leap right to the solution and anchor on what they imagine the solution should be. And that's a particular nefarious trap because most of the time that fails because first you need to deeply understand the problem you're actually solving. And so for in the problem chapter, which comes after insight and sits before the solution, we talk about the importance of understanding the job to be done. And this is a, clay, a concept that Clay Christensen popular, popularized, but you can see elements of it in, in other works, such as Blue Ocean Strategy and things like this. But really it's, you know, we almost always think in terms of, oh, func- uh, what, what does this thing do? But every job to be done has a functional, social, and emotional component. So if you think about like a Harley-Davidson, it's not just a motorcycle. It has an emotional component to it and a social component, which is why people hire that motorcycle for their transportation as opposed to another one. And so it's really about understanding what is that, you know, we introduce some tools what, to understand what is that job to be done so that when you then go to the solution stage, you are much more likely to develop something 
that customers are going to to want. And 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 you know, on the solution stage, we say, you know, you need to prototype the minimum awesome product, and we walk you through four types of prototypes, going from simple to more elaborate, that allow you to minimize the time it takes you to figure out if that solution really does match the job to be done. And then, you know, of course, we wrap up with talking about how you discover a novel business model for your innovation rather than making the mistake of killing your innovation by trying to slap on and, and a mismatched business model. So that's really, uh, you know, an overview of the four steps. Okay, great. And let me ask you about one thing you mentioned, design thinking. It's something we've talked about on the podcast in an episode around uh, a little less than a year ago. <laughs> what are some of the ways you've seen approaches like design thinking change the way innovation occurs in large organizations? Yeah, so design thinking is one of those frameworks I mentioned that have been developed to manage uncertainty. And um, where design thinking has been particularly valuable and impactful has been on the problem and solution stages of the innovation process. And what I mean by that is design thinking is probably the best framework I've seen for getting at this issue of jobs to be done. And so when I, for example, teach about understanding the job to be done, I use a lot of design thinking techniques. I talk about ethnography. I talk about contextual interviews. And really, because what design thinking is about is about empathy for the user, understanding the user through their eyes and what they're trying to accomplish. And that's really the spirit of job to be done is you know, how is, what is, what is it that this customer is really trying to do, not just at a functional level, but what are their emotions and how are they, so the emotional level, and what, is, what about the social level? How did, how are they interacting with others and how does this solution affect their, uh, their interactions with others? So I think design thinking is particularly appropriate for that. It's also very strong in the, pro, in the solution stage because design thinking introduces this idea of using really low-cost prototypes to get rapid feedback and understand if you've actually solved that customer's need. So that's a great example of how we've synthesized perspectives. Now, one thing you'll notice is that design thinking has almost nothing to say about business models or about how you scale it up once you've really nailed your your your, your solution. And so that's where we draw in other frameworks like lean startup or business model generation to think about, well, what, it, how would you match a business model to this, this thing you've developed? And then once you, here's the tricky part. Once you've done all of those steps, the way you manage the company will have to shift once again, when you try to scale it up, scale it up. And we can, we can talk more about that later if you'd like. Yes, yeah, so design thinking is kind of the if you build it, they will come mentality of getting something done. And then I guess you have the whole other side of the coin, which is how do I actually monetize this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say design thinking is, I'd say the old approach was if I build it, they'll come. I think design thinking is trying to get in front of the solution, get in front of building. One thing I'm always emphasizing is don't build anything, you know. 
until you really understood what problem you're solving. And, and design thinking provides some really nice tools for understanding the customer in a, in a deeper way than we typically are used to. Okay, great. So let me ask you about uncertainty because it's one of the key concepts that that kind of underscored or, or underwrote the research. Uh, and you read about it as forcing yeah. this need for companies to innovate in order to remain competitive. What are the two types of uncertainty that you write about in the book and how do they affect how vital it is to a company's survival? Yeah, we, we emphasize two kinds of uncertainty in the book, although we acknowledge three. So the three that we acknowledge are we call demand uncertainty, technical uncertainty, and then competitive or environmental uncertainty. But to really quickly summarize, demand uncertainty is the question uh, most simply summarizes, will customers buy it? Technical uncertainty is the question of, can we make it? And competitive uncertainty is, you know, will somebody else crush us? Will a government change its policy and eliminate us? And for some reason, most innovators, whether they're you know, startup entrepreneurs or managers, tend to obsess about the technical uncertainty, the can we make it piece. And so the, what they typically do is they start to focus on trying to build solutions right away. And, and one of the things we emphasize is that although that may, you may have some technical uncertainty, for the most part, most companies fail because of the demand uncertainty. Will customers buy it? Now, if we if we go up from you know the, the thousand foot view to the thirty thousand foot view, you know companies are struggling because the these uncertainties have increased. So, if we talk about technical uncertainty, um, if you look at patenting rates from 1960 to 2010. In the 1960s, there were about 100,000 U.S. patents filed every year. By 2010, this was nearly 600,000 patents. And it's not just because people are you know, patent trolling and, and doing these things. It's that there's been a leap in the innovations and invention. I should say in our innovations. I should say the inventions that are occurring as more and more participants enter the game of creating value and as the barriers to creating value come down and you know these are all over us i mean the obvious all around us excuse me they're the obvious things like the way that computing power has liberated human creativity but in ways that you don't appreciate you know amazon web services for example means that you no longer have to raise venture capital money to scale up a, an online solution. You can buy what you need and scale it up as you go. And, and you know, the open source software movement has made it so there's you know, software stacks you can just grab off the shelf or, and then begin to modify. And, and so the, the tools, the building blocks, to innovate have become more liberal as well as the number of participants. So that means that there's a lot more invention occurring and in addition to that, there's uh, more demand uncertainty. And, and demand uncertainty is will customers buy it? And that's created by, again, a number of important factors. Most importantly, the rising global participation of people in the entrepreneurial activity. I mean, there's been some estimates that there are 100,000 new businesses founded each year. And 
Uh, yeah, I don't know if that estimate's really accurate. It seems a little overblown to me. But what I can say is that the, what the data says is that in, in 1936, which was the height of the Great Depression, an S&P 500 company had an anticipated lifespan of 75 years. And in about 2011, that lifespan was, has been reduced to about 18 years. And so the simple fact is then that the, the market has become more uncertain. The world has become more uncertain for it. Established businesses, and that just means we need a different toolkit because you can survive through innovation. But what kills you is to focus exclusively on capturing value and then um, realize too late that you do not take the steps to capture value. Sorry, to create value. Yeah, and let me ask you about one of those tools that you mentioned earlier, the Minimum Awesome Product, or MAP yeah. as you call it in the book. What is the MAP, uh, or do you call it the MAP, I guess, and, and what would you say to executives that are concerned that it will hurt the overall perception of their brand? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very common concern. So uh, one of the concepts coming out of Lean Startup and Design Thinking is that you only truly learn whether what you've built is, is going to be successful when it makes contact with customers. And when it makes contact with customers, no matter how much wonderful planning you've done, the reality will be different than you expected. And this was illustrated in an explosive way when Webband spent a billion dollars only to discover that it is very difficult to deliver ice cream in New York City at 5 p.m. In a, within a half-hour window, you know. And the best planning in the world couldn't help them kind of avoid some of the surprises they encountered. So the, 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 it's a common concern, though, because, you know, while we'd like to release our products to customers, if those products aren't ready, then uh, won't customers have a negative reaction and it will damage our brand? The truth is that there are ways that you can manage this. So that, and you have to manage it because in the book, we talk about four prototypes. We talk about theoretical prototypes, which are just a parking spot for the ideas you have, mm -hmm. keeping those in your head. We talk about virtual prototypes, which are um, the, maybe a PowerPoint drawing, a, a clay mock-up, something taped together with paper and, and, and tape. Then the minimum viable product, which is this, you know, product or service that, the, that is the absolute minimum that will allow you to uh, test with customers and, and test the functionality of the product, and then the map, which I'll, I'll talk about. But the, the spirit here is this minimum thing, and it's minimum in this way. It is saying, what is the one or two things I need to do to solve that job to be done? And test if that is important enough to customers that they will buy this and adopt this. Before I go all the way down the road of building this really slick, full-featured product. And the way you get over that fear is to recognize the spirit of what you're trying to do. You're trying to run an experiment. Imagine a scientist saying, I want to run an experiment to um, test some, you know, to cure some disease. The scientists would never then go out and administer that drug to the entire population of people. Of course not. 
the scientists would take, you know, 20 lab rats and then after the lab rats, maybe some other lab animals and then five people and then 30 people and then 100 people. It's really that same approach in testing these minimum viable products and minimum awesome products and virtual prototypes. You're going to test it with a sample of people, hopefully a sample that are um, what we would call the innovators, the early adopters. They're much more forgiving of mistakes. And if it blows up in the face of 10 people, it won't really matter. But it, where executives get into trouble is they try to create this full-featured product, launch it to the entire product, just like that physician creating a vaccine, launching it to the entire population, and then something goes wrong, and they're like, it damages my brand. And of course it did, you know. Um, and, and so before you launch to the entire population, you're working your way up to these prototypes to what I would finally call the minimum awesome product. So you did the theoretical prototype, the virtual prototype, the minimum viable prototype, and then what minimum awesome prototype is about is you, you're still trying to be minimum in the sense that you're focusing almost exclusively on the one or two features that most matter to the customer. But you don't want to be minimum in those one or two features. You want to be awesome in those dimensions. So what you're trying to do is get to the point where you optimize those one or two dimensions so that customers say, like, this is awesome. Once you've gotten that kind of emotion, then you're ready to, number one, start producing this for a larger audience. And two, you can add back in some of those features and some of that glossy wrapping that will make it acceptable to a mainstream audience and you won't damage the brand. And there are, you know, there are all kinds of tricks to avoid trouble. Um, one of my favorites was Samsung was launching an innovative new refrigerator. And like we advised, they did it as an experiment. They had a very small geographic area in which they launched this test product and they provided a 1-800 number so that if anything went wrong, their team would come in and make it right. And uh, an acquaintance was actually part of this and the fridge broke, you know, and he called the hotline and within a few hours, not only had they replaced it with a new fridge, they had restocked it with groceries, they'd washed the floor, it was like an amazing experience for this guy. And it actually turned it from a liability into a benefit. He walked away saying, wow, I'm only buying Samsung from here on out. And, and you know, of course, you, know, you hope he realizes not all products get that kind of treatment. But, but there are ways to limit your liability, but you cannot forego that early testing if you want to be successful. Okay, nice. So... Since uh, insights is the first step in the innovators method, let's leave let's leave listeners with something in the insights realm. Some great stories in the book about the kinds of insights that have been generated by people or companies following the innovators method to solve their customer problems. Can you share one of your personal favorites or one that really seems to resonate with the book's audience? Yeah, um, gosh, there's so many great stories of of insights. You know, actually, one of my favorite stories is in the motorcycle industry. So in the 1950s, Honda wanted to enter the U.S. And at the time, the U.S. motorcycle industry was really dominated by big motorbikes. And it was a real challenge because in post-war Japan, 
currency was was uh, somewhat scarce. They had to obtain permission from the Ministry of Japan to trade some of their internal currency for U.S. dollars so they could enter, and they ended up with an incredibly small amount of money. I think, you know, something like $155,000. And in 1960, that was a fair amount. But still, think about being a large international company trying to enter a foreign market with about, you know, 160000 in capital, of which only about half of it was cash. And, you know, assuming that they knew what, the, what product they needed to create, they, they created these big bikes. And they launched in the U.S., and right away, these big, you know, 350, 450cc bikes started to break down and leak oil. And the problem was that Honda was originally created, uh, really, it was originally successful by creating these small motorbikes that were really good at stop-and-go traffic in Japan, making deliveries. They were like a juiced-up moped. And um, and when they, they what they thought is they could just scale this technology up to these bigger bikes, but these bigger bikes were being used on these long-haul rides, and so the technology just broke down. So they had to use some of that very scarce capital to air freight these big bikes back to Japan to get repaired. And they were in such dire straits that the executives of the company started riding. They had shipped over some of their original bikes, which were these little, you know, 50, 60 cc, little teeny bikes called the Super Cub. And they started, the executives started riding these bikes around town. And people started to say, hey, that's kind of a cool little bike. Where'd you get it? And it wasn't motorcycle dealers who were asking about it. It was sports goods stores who were saying, hey, that's a really interesting little bike. And so the, the surprise for them, uh, the insight for them was that there was a whole customer group who wasn't being served by those big Harleys and Triumphs and you know those big motorcycles. There was a whole group of people who wanted this very thing they thought had been you know, irrelevant in, in this market. And so to me, insights is really, it's about noticing the world around you and making those connections, um, seeing what you might overlook. Uh, another favorite story, Donald Stupi, he's the inventor of coinware. He, uh, coinware is ceramic glass. It's a very hard glass. They use it in a cone of uh, missiles and, and they use it in cookingware. He was an experimentalist and he was he almost missed the insight for coinware and for ceramic glass. He ran an experiment. He put a plate of flat glass in the oven and it misfired to like 1100 Celsius. And he expected that when he opened the oven, it would just be globs of molten glass. When he opened the oven, it wasn't. It was a plate of, of milky glass. And that was his first, his first mistake I would say is he just kind of overlooked that surprise. But fortunately, when he got it out of the oven with some tongs, the glass slipped out of the tongs, fell to the concrete floor, and instead of shattering into millions of pieces, it just rattled and, and didn't break. And that was a big enough surprise that it caught his attention, and that was the seed of, of coinware. And so what I would say is open your eyes up to the world around you. Notice where people are struggling, having problems, where they're, where they're spending a lot of time and energy. Talk to people who are not like you, who are different, who are in different worlds, and then pull the pieces together and start noticing surprises. And that is really the, the spark of the innovator's method. 
Okay, nice. And if you'd like to learn more about Nathan Fur, you can visit his website at www.nathanfur.com. That's fur with two R's. You can also follow him on Twitter at, at Nathan underscore fur. If you'd like to learn more about his book, it's called The Innovator's Method, and you can find out more about it online and take a self-assessment at www.theinnovatorsmethod.com. Anything we missed there, Nathan? No, that was fabulous. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, great. Thanks again to Nathan Furr for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have InnovationExcellence.com's number one innovation blogger of 2014, Mike Shapolsky, joining us to talk about starting the innovation process. We'll talk about the concept of an innovation burst event and its potential benefits, why severe time limitations when creating prototypes can actually increase creativity, and how to know when it's time for you to find a new cow path. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.